0: Today we start a teaching series on marriage. And I will just say this as a caveat, I am not the marriage guy. So I'll be teaching one teaching in this series and all the experts will t- talk. I'm only doing one. Um, I'm not the pastor that, I have one teaching on marriage and I basically do the same one. Um, just, I just redo it every like two years or whatever. So if you've been around for a while, you've heard this probably four times. Um... <laughs> If you haven't been around, you're like, this is good. Yeah, I've been honing it for like 100 years. So um, I'm saying the same thing I've said all the time about commitment in marriage, what that looks like. Obviously, with the birth of our daughter, Juniper, Ash and I, our birth of our daughter, Juniper, it's changed a lot of things. Um, And God has done a really important work in our marriage. Marriage has been really hard for a long time. And so I'm kind of coming at it from... A little different angle, but it's the same general teaching. So just, I'll just say that. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew 19. Now, one last, as you're turning into Matthew 19, one last caveat. If you're single in here, you'll probably be going, why should I sit through a series on marriage? Um, I think it's really important. I'll probably, uh, in the middle of the teaching, I'm going to explicitly talk about how this pertains to single people. But I think this teaching, more than any other teaching I've given on marriage, is actually a really good... Um, uh, teaching for people who are single, whether you desire to be married or even not desire to be married. Um, So I think this is really important. So Matthew 19. Now obviously the context here, if you turn to Matthew 19, the heading over Matthew 19 just says divorce. You're like, wow, this is starting off strong. Um, (laughs) This is the context uh, of this passage, but Jesus doesn't teach on divorce as much as he teaches on marriage. So we'll talk about that. So I'm going to read up just up to verse 6 to his teaching on marriage. And it goes on from there. You can read that later. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then I'll pray. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, all the stuff he was saying in chapter 18 and 17 and so on. He left the Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. Crowds were always following Jesus because... Um, He taught really, really well. He healed and he fed people. So, I mean, he had always had crowds. He healed many people there. Some Pharisees came to to Jesus to test him. And they asked him this question. This is the test. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray your grace and your peace over our, um, over our church th- today. I know that as we talk on marriage, uh, there are so many things tied to this, from the marriages of our parents uh, or divorce of our parents growing up or where we're at now, wanting to be married, are married, are divorced, whatever. And all this stuff is just like colliding here. I ask for your spirit to speak in a manifold way where you're speaking this to this person and that to another person, confirming, affirming, and um, even convicting in ways that, that are misaligned that need to be realigned around you. I submit all of my mind and my thoughts and my heart to you and I pray that you would anoint me to um, speak your words, words of life, in Christ's name, amen. How does making a commitment happen? How do you make a commitment? Um, When I made the commitment to become a pastor, I remember falling in love with seeing people, namely junior hires, understand the Bible and fall in love with following Jesus for the first time. And I didn't really expect it. I I didn't, at the time I was going to school to be a firefighter like my dad. And by going to school, I mean taking general ed at City College. Um, I was doing that, moving towards uh, being a firefighter. But I fell in love with ministry. And then I made ministry my career because I fell in love with it. I sensed a call to it by God, and then it became my vocation. And when I was ordained at a uh, really young, like 22 years old or something, I made a commitment to serve Christ and to self-sacrificially serve his bride, the church. See, once our heart falls in love with something or someone, the soul has a powerful urge to make a promise to it. This happens on all kinds of levels. Everyone's experienced this. This could happen with a career. You fall in love with doing something and then you want to make a commitment towards it. Your commitment might be to go to to more schooling for it or get trained toward it. Um, It might happen with a church. You fall in love with a church. You make a commitment for it. You sign up for kids ministry. You start doing something where you, you move toward a commitment. You fall in love with a club or a group or a town or a city, even with a group of friends and you make commitments towards these things. But among our earthly relationships, there, are, there is no stronger a promise or commitment than in marriage. When I began to fall in love with Ashley, I was 16 years old. I told my dad I was going to marry her. He laughed, like physically out loud laughed at me. Like uncontrollably, he was just like, it just came out of him. And I was deeply offended at that time. But I'm, I'm older now. I am, I'm actually older than my dad was when he laughed at me, okay? Okay. And being 40, if a 16-year-old kid from our youth group came up to me and said they fell in love and they were going to marry this person they were in love with, I'd probably laugh too. But I was, when I was 16, I was in love. And when your heart falls in love with something, your soul wants to make a promise to it. So on our first dating anniversary, I gave Ashley a promise ring that I saved up for and bought at Mervyn's, which is like the Kohl's of our day, Right? <laughs> And I promised myself to her when I was just barely 17, I told her, I love you and I will always love you, I said. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. I remember the, the box, the ring came in. I remember going to the store to buy it. I remember what the box felt like in my pocket, all of it. A couple months ago, Ash and I were in a walk in and around our neighborhood. We live by St. Francis Wood. And if you've ever been there, I have a huge fountain there where lots of people go for taking, taking wedding and, and engagement pictures we're walking through that neighborhood and we saw a young couple taking pictures. We thought it was like the prom or something. And then all sneaky like, when the girl wasn't looking, the guy pulls out a box and gets on one knee. And when the girl turned around, there was that moment that happened. And the photographer was obviously not, he's taking all kinds of pictures. And she's like, ah, and then he like stands up and like, ah, and they put the ring on and Ash and I are like from far like, yay, all right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then we walk closer to them and we're like, hey, congratulations on your engagement. And they're like, thanks, but it's not an engagement. It's a promise ring. We're in high school. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like guys take a knee for that these days? Like I didn't take a knee for that. I didn't. That I saved that for engagement. That's, that's all in, right? I, I remember that intense young love. That love, when you fall in love, when you're, especially when you're young, love seeks to want to promise fidelity. When you fall in love, it's not like, I love you so much that I don't want anything to do with you for a long period of time. (laughs) It's the opposite of that. I'm so in love with you, I want to vow myself to you. I want to bind myself to you. Now, maybe you remember that too. Maybe that's a really good memory, memory for you. It might be a very bad, heartbreaking memory for you. The point here is this. What love feels like is a desire to move toward promises. Love feels like a desire to move toward dedication, toward fidelity. C.S. Lewis famously says this in Mere Christianity. i quote quoted this at every single wedding that I do. Being in love is a good thing, C.S. Lewis says, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, and there are also things above it. You cannot make it a basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling being in love, but it's still a feeling. No, Now, no feeling can be relied upon to last in its full intensity or to even last at all. Of course, ceasing to be in love when that feeling is gone need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. See, they can have this love for each other, even at those moments when they do not like each other. Someone say amen. Amen. Yeah, like, yes, it's not as bad. Being in love, listen, being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. This is his book on philosophy, by the way. This is so deep and brilliant. Lewis here is comparing and contrasting two kinds of love. The first kind he calls the first kind of love, and the second kind is a quieter love. This first kind is intense. It's passionate. It's powerful. Obviously, there are different degrees to what this is and how it's felt and experienced person to person. But this phase is he calls being in love. He says it's only a phase. It doesn't last for its full intensity, nor should it last at its full intensity. The second kind of love he calls a quieter love. It's love that is more like a deep unity. One that is maintained not by feelings of ecstasy or attraction or passion, but one that is maintained by the will, meaning you choose it every single day and is strengthened by habit, habits of turning toward each other, of making gestures of love and commitment and sacrifice toward each other every single day. Now, some in here will say, well, not us. We're more passionate today than ever before in our marriage. Okay, you're amazing. You don't have to come up and tell me that after the sermon. Keep it to yourself. Everyone wants you to keep it to yourself. (laughs) C.S. Lewis would say that you're wrong though, but whatever. Like he would say, what Lewis is saying is that that first love, you might have a different kind of love now, but that first love that started it all, it's, it's, it's a great thing. But it started this thing that caused you to want to promise fidelity. It, something happened where you fell in love and you wanted to move towards the other person and say, I want to choose you every day. And that's not hard right now. It's easy. But I want to promise myself to you that when it gets hard, I will still choose you and love you. In sickness and in health, rich or poor, till death do us part. That's, that's the fidelity part. Like when you fall in love, you want to move towards that. The first love was a spark. And this, what does that, that first love spark? It sparks the engine of commitment. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders and is asked his take on divorce. Every rabbi had their own take on divorce. But the Pharisees were trying to trap him. They said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and any and all reasons? Can someone leave his, his, his wife? Can you get divorced for any and every reason? Now, any reason? Of course. This is a trap, right? It's a trick. They're trying to get Jesus to say, Of course not. Man, you can't divorce your wife for any and, and any reason. And then they would say to him, well, Moses said that we could, Deuteronomy 24, are you greater than Moses? So that's basically what they're going to do. But Jesus knows what they're trying to do. And so he leapfrogs Moses and goes straight to page one of the Bible. That's what he does. He's like, I know you're going to try to talk about Moses. Let me talk about how it started. So he goes to page one. Now he says to Pharisees who, were devoted, who devoted their lives to the strict reading and memorization of the scriptures, He says to them, have you read page one? Which is kind of an offense, right? It's, have you read, what does page one say? And he says, in the beginning, the creator God made them male and female. Now, obviously this has real big implications on gender and sexuality. I know that's hanging there in the room in this text. We'll get there in our sexuality series in a few weeks. So just park that for a bit. We'll get there in a couple, a few weeks. What's important to see right now, what I want you to see right now is that Jesus is simply quoting from Genesis. That's what he's doing. He's like, okay, you have, you have a question about marriage and a question about divorce. Let's just talk about the beginning. Let's talk about how the creator created it. He continues. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In quote, question mark. The reason why it's a question mark, he's saying, haven't you read from the beginning? This is what it says, right? So this part here is a quote from Genesis. The next two sentences are just Jesus' commentary on the quote. So here's Jesus' commentary on that part in Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here it is. This is the most comprehensive teaching that we have on marriage in the Gospels. Just two verses. One of them a quote from Genesis and the other a commentary on that verse. So what do we learn about marriage from Jesus in this passage? So three things that I want to pull out briefly. The spark of marriage, the leaving, and the joining. Okay, so first the spark. Jesus first talks about the spark of marriage. Look at verse 5. He says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. For this reason. Reason. That's the spark. There's a reason why someone would leave their families, leave their singleness, leave their independence to commit to marriage. What's the reason? When Jesus says for this reason, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 2. The account of when God made Eve from Adam's side. What, What God does there is God puts Adam asleep. And, when, and he creates Eve from Adam's side. And then when Adam wakes up, he sees Eve and he says this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now it's kind of lost in English translation, but this is very poetic. What's happening here, the, what he's saying is he looks at Eve and he says, Finally, someone that is like me. So much so like me, I'm naming her me, but with a feminine, article, a feminine ending on it. I'm Ish, you shall be Isha. Like if I was like, I'm David, you're Davida. I don't know. Like that's <laughs> kind of what it's like. You're like me. This is really huge. Remember. Remember the, the sequence, right? So God makes something and it's good. He makes it and it's good. He makes it and it's good. Right? That's the sequence of Genesis 1. And then when he sees that Adam is alone, it's not good. There's a break in the rhythm. It's not good that man's alone. So what God does is he marches all the a- animals in front of Adam and he, and he gives, Adam gives them names. Now, this might feel like a non sequitur. Like why in the world would God do that? Why would God march animals in front of Adam when Adam is all alone? Now, the reason why God does that is that God wants Adam to know that he's alone. He wants Adam to know that there is no one like him in the whole world. At all. And so after he sees all the animals, he's like, there's no one like me. I'm the only one like me. So Adam falls asleep. And then when he wakes up, he sees Eve. And what does he say? Finally, same of my same. This one is like me. She shall be called like me because she's like me. She came from me. So this is kind of, I think this is really important. This is like the point of the text. The scripture's first word on what the Bible says about men and women is that we are the same. See, I know we read all these marriage books that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, (laughs) and that they're completely different people. We come from completely different planets, but that's not what the Bible says. We're actually the same and we're equal. We're not interchangeable. That's a really, really important distinction. We're not interchangeable. Again, that's our next series. There are differences, and there's all kinds of differences, but there are more likenesses than there are differences. The reason why Adam's alone is because he's not really complete in the sense that Adam cannot fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply alone. He needs Eve. There's the sense that what Adam is saying when he sees Eve is that this person completes me. She completes Completes me. The famous psychologist and psychiatrist Carl Jung once wrote, the unrelated human being lacks wholeness. Unrelated, meaning they're not in relationship. For he can achieve wholeness only through the soul. And the soul cannot exist without its other side, which is always found in a you. We have this, this, part in our soul that desires to cling to someone else. Now I know it's super cliche to say this, but Adam and Eve were made for each other. And the spark of marriage kind of feels like that. Jesus says so. He says for this reason a man will leave his family and a a woman will leave her family and they will be joined and the two will become one flesh. That's what the spark feels like. It feels like I mean, not to be cheesy or cliche, you complete me. It feels like I I I want to vow my life to you. It feels like that. Now, I want to stop here and say a few things. Okay, first of all, to the married couples, let me speak directly to you. Research shows that in order to build a lasting marriage, you must often remember and keep alive, and keep not keep alive, but keep in your mind the spark of marriage or you have to keep alive the early idealized images of each other. Research shows that, research shows that happy marriages remember the the idealized beginnings of your relationship. And they often will just think about each other when you guys first fell in love. I do, I try to do this. I do it sometimes and it's actually kind of creepy. Because I fell in love with Ashley when she was in high school. And there's sometimes, and this is gonna sound so weird, where I'll see someone in high school that reminds me of Ashley, and I'm like, oh, Ashley. And it reminds me of Ashley, and I'm and it happened one time with Tarek, where Ash and I both worked at uh, Carpinteria High School when we lived in Carpinteria. And there was a girl at this high school who looked exactly like Ashley when Ashley was in high school. And Ashley and I talked about it because we both worked there. I'm like, that girl, and she was also a cheerleader, which Ashley was she- I'm like, that girl looks exactly like you in high school. It's so crazy. And one time, this girl was walking in uh, Starbucks or something and Tark and I were together. And we we're just getting to know each other. And this girl walks in. I'm like, Tark, look at that girl. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, look at her. Look The girl, the, the girl with the, ch- the cheerleading outfit on. He's like, he just looks at me, he's like, no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, that looked exactly like Ashley when she was young. He's like, can we go now? Can, he's just, and I, I, even looking back, I have to say it, just therapy, like, get it out. It's super creepy. But this is, I, I often remember, I have, both Ash and I often remember the idealized versions that we had of ourselves when we were, or each other, when we were first starting to fall in love. Research points that that spark that you remember is super important. Now, for some of us, that's really hard to do because the idealized things that we have about our spouse, like they didn't meet our expectations. And so all that stuff, like I thought you were this and you're not that. See, th- this, that's, that's kind of part of the problem. Um, you have to actually go back to that. Not that they become that, but that you remember this is why I fell in love with them. That idealized part is actually part of the spark. Now, I want to say something to the single, single people here. Here's your, um, uh, most of our, 64% of our church is not married. <laughs> so, here we go. So, I, so, here's what I want to say right here. This part here for this reason this spark that wants you to make a mutual, a mutual promise to fidelity is the hardest part for many to find. This is really hard. I rejoice every single time I see it happen. I rejoice with my friends when they're in their 40s in their church and this happens. They're in their late 30s, their mid-30s. It's, it's somehow easier when you're young, but it's still not easy. And there are all kinds of factors that play into this sociologically. I don't, I, don't ha, I don't want to really get into all that right now. But the bottom line is this. Finding this spark, this person, is really hard and it can be really painful. I, and I, there, I, had, I had a whole list of things I wanted to share, but I'm going to have to save this for a series we're doing on singleness later on. But I want to say this here. I want to say don't give up. Like don't give up. Here's why. The stages you go through To get that spark take a while. You have to go from noticing someone to the stage of curiosity where you're curious about this other person to getting to know one another over conversation to those conversations eventually going so deep to the point where you have to vulnerably open the center of who, who you are to this other person all the way to the stage of taking that risky leap of love. That's that that's just the beginning stages of the spark. That takes time. That takes a lot of time. And that might you might get to stage 3 and go, oh, this isn't this isn't working. <laughs> and you might have to do that over and over and over again. Don't give up. Now, I, there's so much more I want to say about this. And again, I want to save it for our singleness series or a, 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 lecture, a series of teachings we're going to be doing on singleness and all that in, uh, in the fall. So, first, that was the first, the spark. Second, the leaving. So marriage and the desire to promise fidelity starts with a reason, a spark. And we can call the spark love. And love wants to be forever. So we marry, We commit. And what does commitment look like? Well, Jesus says commitment looks like leaving. It's the first thing he says about about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother. Marriage commitment first looks like leaving. Leaving what? What do you leave when, when you get married? That's pretty simple, right? In context, marriage commitments look like leaving your family to start a new family. It sounds simple enough. Dad gives away the bride, son moves out of the house. Easy. But we all know it's not that simple. Because our families have a way of living in our bones. We have a way of repeating the sins and the shortcomings of our family of origin from two to three generations back. We talked about this in the relationship series. Before you were married, the influence of your family was largely unconscious because the way you did things were just the way you did things. But within months of your marriage, the first months of your marriage, your way of doing things comes into direct contact with another person's way of doing things, and everything kind of collides and blows up, right? So you have all these things from the, your family of origin. They meet their family of origin. You think, oh, we must love each other. Then you guys, you get married, you move in. All of a sudden, the rhythms start when Ash and I, fir- not, not first, it still kind of happens. Um... Oh, by the way, this is a very vulnerable teaching, so I'll share some stuff that like, we're still going through right now, live, the last 24 hours. So, <laughs> so I grew up, every time I'm in, uh, again, this is, my, this is weird, but whatever, I'm just going to say this stuff because I don't, I don't care. Um, every time I'm in the bathroom for any reason, I lock the door. I grew up with two sisters, and we all shared a bathroom, so privacy is like a really big deal to me, Okay. If I come out of the shower, I'll keep a towel wrapped around me and come out, or come out fully dressed. That's just the way I was raised. Ash grew up as a single child. She never closed the door for any reason whatsoever. And we still argue about this. It's like, shut the door. Why? It's just you. I know. It's just me. And I think there should Bill, still be some mystery in our marriage. Like some mystery still, right? Or she's like, open the door. I need in. I'm like, not now. (laughs) This still is a thing. Like, full on a thing still. But this is so much deeper. Now that's, that, we learned that from our family, right? We, we got that from our family, the way we relate. And th- those, things, those things collide. But it's also deeper than this. The way our families get into our bones. It's hard to leave our family of origin in order to become one flesh with our spouse. It's hard. Ash uh, had a very emotionally scattered upbringing. Her parents were very emotionally scattered. Sometimes they were affectionate. Sometimes they were absent. She never knew which, which parent she's getting when. Um, they were divorced. So then they go to different houses. It was... So she's a scat. Her, 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 her personality is withdrawing when we argue. So she just withdraws. I grew up around abuse and outrage. So I use arguments, like intensity, that sort of thing. I like go after all. I had to make myself know like this is what needs to happen, that sort of thing. So, so say something like um, we're trying to get to somewhere on time. So I say to Ashley, Ashley, we have to leave by 2 o'clock to get there on time. So when Ash hears that from me, she hears it as blaming or condemning. So she withdraws and doesn't say anything. Like we have to leave by two if we're going to get there on time. So she, she hears that as like, I won't make it. I'm a bad person. So she doesn't like respond. So she says nothing. So because she says nothing, I don't think she's listening. So I repeat the request. <laughs> but this time with the argument that she's never on time and she doesn't have a good concept of time, and then I give her a timeline of when she needs to be in the shower, and then when she needs to be doing this, and when she needs to be doing that. I feel a lot of judgment in the room right now. (laughs) A lot, from like half of you, meaning. So at this point, she already feels like she failed at being there on time, so she withdraws even more. This cycle continues until we're late, And I'm giving her a lecture in the car about the concept of time, how time works. (laughs) Typically, I'm super angry when I'm doing this. And we've been doing this for 20 years. Ever since we were dating. The time thing hasn't changed much. So basically what I do now is I lie to her and tell her things start 45 minutes before they do. And that (laughs) seems to work out, right? But this also... This also works out um, in the way that uh, when, we, when we realized when our marriage was not doing well, when we knew we needed marriage counseling, I, would suge- I suggested for, for a few years that we need to go see a counselor. Um, Ash didn't know this until later, but when she heard we need to see a counselor, she basically thought that our marriage ended, had ended. Because one of uh, her, her dad, was married to someone, they went to a Christian counselor, and then they got divorced, like, after a few sessions. So she, like, in her implicit memory, just thought, it's over. So she never wanted to see a counselor. As soon as we see a counselor, it's going to be over. And so we had to, like, work through that until, like, a few years later, she finally realized that where it was coming from, and now, now as long as we don't do that, we can go see one. But with drawing and the intensity that we both learned from our family, that part we're leaving We've been trying to leave this. We're still in process, but this is to leave your family. You, there's a, I would say there's a leaving your family. I'm still leaving my family because it lives in me. Ash is still leaving her family. Ash is learning not to withdraw, but to have an opinion and to enter into conversation. I'm learning how to trust and let go of some control. When I read Ash my notes... We kind of collaborated on this sermon, but when I read Ashley this part of my note, she said, I thought you were going to say that you're going to leave the bathroom door open as a sign of moving towards trust and surrender. (laughs) And I said, that's not going to happen at all. That's not what this means. Don't put word. no. This leaving takes longer than you think, okay? The leaving of your family of origin the bad parts, gifts in your bones, and it's, it's a leaving. If you're in a marriage where you're still working, this leaving thing out, we are too. That's a part of marriage. You have to leave. It, it doesn't happen as, as quickly as um, some would hope. Lastly, the joining. So leaving. And to be joined together. Jesus says in verse 6, which is his commentary on marriage from the passage in Genesis, he says, So they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now I think Jesus is brilliant in that he can say so much with so few words. He basically gives us an entire teaching on marriage in two sentences. Jesus is saying, When you get married, you are no longer two independent people, you are a new entity, you are a new reality. You are now a mysterious third person. You are a one flesh union. It means that two whole and independent individuals are now one whole interdependent community. They're a community. They have unity around their interdependence. It means that these two people are now so interwoven with each other that to all intents and purposes, they are as much a part of one another as their own organs are a part of them. So, Remember, this is a whole teaching on, on, di- on like the context is divorce. So Jesus is, is being asked, can, can, you get, can you get divorced? So what he's saying is that the logic of God's math is one plus one equals one. So what Jesus is saying about divorce is that if one plus one equals one, how do you divide one without making fractions? You can't. You can't divide one without it being completely torn apart. Now, How does this oneness happen? And Jesus says that God does this. Who joins two people together? What God has joined together. It's not nature that joins people together. It's not even your love that joins two people together. We think love is everything in marriage. According to Jesus, it's God who fuses two people together. God makes two people one. What God has joined together. So God joins two people. But what's our part? If God's part is joining us to become this one flesh union, what is our part? Our part is seen in Jesus' word for join. God joins them together. The word that Jesus, Jesus used for join is unique to Jesus. He uses the word yoke. What God yokes together. Jesus sees marriage as being yoked. Yoked is a work word. Yoke has to do with labor and toil and tilling the ground and working together. Here's a picture of two yoked uh, oxen or bulls or cows or something. I don't know. Do you see that thing on their neck? That's a yoke. If you've been married, you're like, I know what that feels like. (laughs) I know exactly what that feels like. But this is the picture that Jesus gives right here. He says what God has yoked together. Well, God has joined together. When two animals were yoked together, they were bound together. United in order to work together for a, to- a common task. This is what God does. God yokes two people together. So here's a couple things that I, I-, I want to pull out from this. I think this is really important. First of all, marriage is work. Marriage is work. If your marriage feels like work, it's okay. Okay. Jesus said, it's work. Marriage is yoke. It's a work. Now, how do you work on your marriage? How do you work out your marriage? How do you make sure that you, you're, the work in your marriage is aligned? How do you make sure the work in your marriage, you're doing the same thing? You're working towards the same purpose. This is a really good question. This is actually the subject of the rest of the series and the conf- marriage conference that we have coming up in a few weeks. But I want to leave you as I close with one thing. Something that Ash and I have learned about the work of our marriage. And we are learning even still. Something that when we're doing this work, our marriage feels amazing. And when we're not, our marriage feels so bleak. And it's this. Move towards each other. This is the work that every marriage needs. You must move toward each other. In John Gottman's book, he's a psychological researcher on marriage, has done the most extensive research on marriages. He, he says the data on what make, makes marriages last. He says that happy couples move toward each other, especially in communication. They move toward each other. When, when, a couple, when couples continually turn toward each other, they are building trust, he says. He calls them bids. Um, the research that he did was he researched, um, I think, over a, f- a couple hundred different couples over thousands of hours of research, had couples go to an, uh, uh, like an apartment they set up where they had cameras everywhere and they ab- observed a couple over a weekend. They did this for like a year or something. They would go there and spend two days there and they had cameras, heart rate monitors, everything on them and they would just observe. And they would go through all this research and they would track their marriage and how it did, all this stuff, like this really extensive research. And what he said was his, his favorite part of seeing a romantic couple interact was not the stuff that movies are made of. It was simple conversation. And when, a co- when one of the, one of the, the partners um, made a bid toward the other person, the other person would, would move toward him. And this is what he said. He said, for example, say you're on your phone in the living room and you're reading or you're scrolling the news and your partner comes up and says, look, the fog is burning off and today is going to be sunny. Okay, that's a very common thing that happens in San Francisco, right? (laughs) It's sunny today. The fog's burning off, okay? That, he would call, is a conversational bid. The the spouse goes in and they're just throwing out a bid like, will you interact with me? If you look up and say, wow, like I'm so happy about that. That's amazing. Uh, Maybe we can go on a walk later or something. He would call that a toward bid. Toward. Like moving toward this other person. With your remark, you're moving toward your partner. So, like, well, it's nice to be outside, and you're reading, you're scrolling, you're inside this news article, you're deep in this news article, you're trying to concentrate because they're trying to make this point, and it's like a long-form New Yorker article or something. You're like, and they say this, and you just look up and go, "Oh, cool, we should go for a, we should go for a walk later today," and all of a sudden, you've moved toward each other. Now, what typically happens in my marriage with me, and this is my this is my fault. This is I do this all the time, especially being ADD. When someone breaks my concentration, I just like stop breaking my concentration. Ash will say, oh, wow, look, it's going to be sunny today. We should go for, or it's going to be sunny. The fog's burning off. I will typically say, I'm in the middle of reading something. Would you just let me finish? I'm almost done here. Just let me finish. Now, obviously in this room right now, that land's like, oh, Dave, you're a horrible person. (laughs) And I get that. I feel that right now. I feel your looks. I feel all of that. But when I'm in the middle of it, I feel like, I feel robbed. I feel like I'm in the middle of what? Why would you talk to me in the middle of something? You see, I'm in the middle of reading something and I, that's part of my job. I have to read. Like I have to do like this sort of thing. Like I get, I justify all this. He would call this a against bid. Ash makes an advancement towards me. I am against her advancement. I am against her connection. I'm against her conversation. I would say, like, before I, I studied this, I would say that, that that was a very innocent way of me saying, Ash, let's just like have some ground rules. When I'm concentrating or when you're concentrating, I won't, we won't bug you. He, he, Like, no, mar- happy marriages are, you're able to interrupt the other person. The other person bit, does a toward bit. The other side, or you can respond this way. You could just ignore the person. Just keep reading. I hope they get the hint that I'm not listening to them because I'm deep in this, in this article. Or you grunt, like, hmm. He would say, that's a turning away bid. You haven't, you haven't put up a wall to be against them. You just kind of just turned away from them. Okay? In his book, The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, Gottman observed that in marriages that succeed, the couple experiences five toward bids for every one against or turning away bid. Five. So every single time that happens with couples, he, he, as he observes in the lab, it's like, the, this is what makes marriage, when, when someone, they're just reading something and someone says something, the other person drops whatever they're reading and just pays attention to them and like, oh yeah. And they do that. He goes, those are the happy, those are the ones that, that last. Because they're, they're moving toward each other. But the ones that are like stonewalling or like ignoring, th- those don't. Now, I think this is helpful research and this is exactly what we see in the first marriage when sin enters the world they don't move toward each other, right? They hide. They move away. They hide with fig leaves. They move away from each other. And the reason why I end the sermon right here is because whether we are married or single, because I think this applies to all of us, this is what keeps us from real intimacy with each other. Whether you're single or married, this is what keeps us away from real intimacy. In our marriages, when we move toward each other, that's how intimacy grows. In our relationships, as we move toward each other and we, in bids, when conversational bids, we move toward each other. In our dating, this has nothing to do with extroverts and introverts. This has to do with intimacy. When we are moving toward. And this moving toward is what Jesus came to do. This is the the gospel. There is no clearer way of like summarizing what Jesus came to do than moving toward us. Jesus is making bids toward us all the time. He ultimately did that when he came in the flesh. It says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ moves toward us. And he gave his life for us. He's making a bid toward us. When Peter denied Jesus three times after resurrection, Jesus moved toward Peter. When When Jesus has a conversation with a woman who has been abused by man after man after man after man and she tries to change the subject, Jesus doesn't let her and keeps moving toward her. This is what Jesus does. And so as we end and as we close, I know that there's all kinds of ways that God wants to be moving and maybe is moving toward us right now. Moving toward us in our relationship. Moving toward us in things that we have to Um, ask forgiveness for or repent from or reestablish in our own marriages and our own singleness and our own dating life whatever it is like there's all kinds of ways that God by his spirit is moving toward us and we could ignore it we could just go "Uh," and ignore it turning away we can resist it we can say not now Jesus it's time for brunch or whatever and turn against Christ or we can actually enter in This is why we have, uh, if you're new to our church, at the end of every sermon, we spend ample time in response because we believe that God is speaking all the time. And what we want to habituate you towards as followers of Jesus is moving towards Jesus. Every bid, every inclination, every Still small voice, every nudge, everything the Holy Spirit whispers or says or hits you with blunt force trauma right upside your head. You're always moving towards God. So let's do that now. Would you stand with me as we pray?